Welcome to Agents of Everything, Episode 3. My name is James Tripp, and the title of this episode is Making Sense of the Truth Trap, and that is exactly what we will be doing. However, this could equally be titled Making Sense and the Truth Trap, because one of the things we're going to be doing here is diving into the reality, so to speak, of us human beings as sense makers and looking at the significance of the sense that we make. Because the sense that we make of ourselves and the sense that we make of the world and the sense that we make of ourselves in the world tends to operate somewhat like our own personal operating system. Now, if you think about that metaphor operating system, um, I have a MacBook Pro here, so I'm running Mac iOS. That means I can run the software that is compatible with Mac iOS. If I try and run software that's compatible only with Windows, I'm going to have difficulty doing so. Okay, so I'm using this metaphor of operating system because our own personal operating system tends to dictate uh, our subroutines, our subprograms, our chances of engagement with the world, whatever you might call it, which in turn tends to dictate the results that we get. And there's a kind of logical fate in that. And that's a term that I might come back to later on in this podcast episode. Okay, sense, sense making. I think I'm going to start this by pointing out something to everybody listening to this that I very often find myself pointing out to clients. In the work that I do, helping people make the changes they want to make in themselves and in their lives, I work with quite a broad range of clientele. And I work with those people in different contexts. So some of the work that I do is with military veterans, frontline services, these sorts of people. And I work with those people via the organization Rock to Recovery UK. You can find out about that by Googling it if you wish to do so. Now, often when I'm working with people in that arena, the people I'm working with really are in a desperate place, right? It's the, the sort of desperation end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum of the people I work with are what I sometimes call the inspiration end of the spectrum. Okay, they're people who are aspiring to a lot. They're looking to climb a mountain, so to speak, metaphorically speaking. And they're often people that many would consider to be high achievers. However, nobody, wherever they are on this spectrum, ever has no problems. Okay. They're often perceiving areas where they're getting stuck, where things are getting on top of them. And some of the people more at the inspiration end, they're quite resourceful, this kind of thing. But it's very often that people will end up in a situation where they feel they're stuck. They're not making progress. Things have got on top of them in their life somehow, right? And sometimes they do this thing. It's a very, very human thing. They judge themselves. They judge themselves for not being able to handle something, not being able to deal with something, not being able to do it better than they are doing it. I should be able to do this by now, that kind of thing. They end up judging themselves. So there's something I end up pointing out to people reasonably often, which is that they are a human being, right? I'll often say when people are in a little bit more of a desperate place and they feel like things are on top of them, I say, look, you're a human being. And that means there's something that's true for you, that's true for all of us. It's the one area in which we are all absolutely equal. We all come into this world having absolutely no clue of anything. We don't know what's what, what's up, what's down, what's us, what's not us. We know nothing. 
And we come into a world of incredible complexity and dynamism. We are all charged with making sense of that world and making sense of ourselves in that world in such a way as we're able to handle it. But the world is crazy, and it legitimately is. Our brains, if you look at this from an evolutionary perspective, our brains were not evolved to deal with the level of complexity that we find ourselves dealing with every day in our lives. Even somebody with apparently the most simple life by modern standards is dealing with a level of complexity that goes way, way beyond anything we were evolved to deal with, right? So if anybody ever finds themselves feeling uh, a little bit uh, confused, unclear, like they haven't got a grip of something quite as they feel they quote unquote should do, that is worth bearing in mind. We are all charged with making sense of the world, making sense of ourselves, and making sense of ourselves in the world in such a way that we are optimally empowered to make the differences we want to make. And this is no simple thing. This comes back to the agents of everything concept. So we're all equal in this respect. Now, I talked a little bit in the previous episode about epistemology. I'm using the term sense-making more here because I think it's more useful. Sometimes I'll use that term epistemology. Sometimes I use the term sense-making. The term epistemology has an older pedigree and it really started out with this idea of what can we know for certain, right? So old school epistemology was looking for certainty. It's looking for a sort of foundationalism. What are the truths we absolutely know we can know that we can infer other truths from in really solid and unshakable ways? Now, the project of epistemology, the project of philosophy, certainly in the Western world, and this is true of both Anglo-American philosophy and continental philosophy, kind of hit a sticking point, a stopping point, which is ultimately everybody concluded there is nothing we can absolutely know with certainty, whether that's through empiricism, whether that's through rationality. There's always some way of shaking the ground out from underneath of it. So epistemology started to be used in a slightly different way, particularly by somebody who's a big influence on the kind of stuff that I'm engaged with, i.e. neurolinguistics and that kind of thing. A guy called Gregory Bateson started to use epistemology a little bit differently. Instead of it being about what can we know, it became more about how do we know? What are the processes of coming to know? Even if what we come to know cannot be asserted absolutely and unequivocally as truth, right? Everything that we know is fallible. This is called fallibilism. You accept everything you know is fallible, right? But you're still charged with making sense of the world and acting in it. And I'm not going to get too deep into the philosophy here. I'll just say this, that a big part of my background, and certainly as a change agent, is neurolinguistics, uh, NLP, the work of Banner and Grinder, which was influenced by Gregory Bateson. And the big influence on NLP is a philosophical movement called pragmatism, right? It's either a direct or indirect influence. And pragmatism says, look, you don't get to know the truth. You only get to know what's useful. Right, so epistemology under a pragmatic framework becomes about useful sense-making. What kind of sense can we make that helps us achieve the things we want to achieve, live a good life, engage with the world in useful ways, ways that bring about good kind of outcomes? So this kind of pragmatism, pragmatic bias, this is very much there, certainly in my approach. Now, 
This podcast is the Agents of Everything podcast. We're looking to increase our agency in the world, our ability to affect change. Pragmatism is something that I think is to be valued very much in our frame, much more so than truth, okay? So the pragmatic frame on epistemology or sense-making is not, is the sense we make true? It is the sense we make useful. Does it help us create what we want to create? Now, I'm giving you a little bit of a theoretical perspective on this, but I want to come back to what it is that we do, we human beings. Now, I said we all come into the world equal. We come into the world as babies, and when we're babies, we have no power. We absolutely have no power. Uh, we have some reflexes, grasp reflex, suckle reflex, this kind of thing. Uh, we cry when we're hungry, although we don't know that we're hungry because we don't make sense of it in that way. It's just a thing that happens, and we don't even know that we are we, right? So it's said that children don't even have a sense of self, as in I, separate from something else. So they see a hand moving in front of their face. They don't know it's a hand. It's a thing moving. They don't know if it's part of them, quote-unquote, or if it's part of the world around them because they don't have that distinction yet. I might talk about distinctions in this episode as well, uh, but I might end up talking about distinctions in a completely separate episode. So we come into the world, we have these reflexes, grasp reflex, suckle reflex, cry reflex. Uh, there's other reflexes there. And I often say this isn't quite accurate, probably, but we also have something you could call a semantic reflex, right? Or certainly a semantic instinct, if not a reflex. And the semantic instinct, the word semantics refers to meaning, the meaning in things. We are charged with making sense, right? creating a meaningful understanding of the world that enables us to have power in it. So our journey from being a baby to being an adult is a journey from no power. We utterly are reliant upon people looking out and looking after us to a journey to power. Now, that power to some degree comes from having motor skills, right? Obviously, a baby doesn't have good motor skills, cannot locomote its way through the world on its own two feet and that kind of thing. But it's more than just that. An adult has power in the world because of the sense they make of themselves in the world. And sense dictates a few things. It dictates what we see as possible, right? What we see as likely and how we experience ourselves, okay? What we see as threatening and dangerous and what we see as opportunity, right? We start to see a world of threats, of opportunities, of possibilities, of potentials, and this world that we see dictates our engagement. It creates our engagement, okay? Now, it's absolutely true to say that not everybody ends up with an equally functional model of the world in terms of personal power and personal sovereignty. Let me just take an aside here to say something about personal power. And I may have said this before, so if you've heard me say this before, please indulge me just for a moment. A um, little while ago, a couple of three years ago, I encountered the work of Neville Goddard, who's a New Thought author. And I like a lot of that New Thought stuff. I think there's some interesting ideas in there. I find uh, useful nourishment in there, some use, useful stimulation. And I quite liked some of the ideas of this Neville Goddard stuff. I thought they were quite well put together. I didn't think they were true necessarily. We're going to come to that, the truth trap and all of this kind of thing. But some interesting ideas that informed me 
in my engagement with the world in ways that I pragmatically evaluated as being kind of useful. So I like this. I'm thinking I quite like this Neville Goddard guy. He's an interesting guy. Let me find out more about him. And I jumped online and one of the first articles I found was about this book that I'd read and I liked this book. It was his book, At Your Command. So I looked online and there was an article talking about Neville Goddard and this particular book saying it read like a pocketbook for personal fascism, right? And I was quite thrown by this. I thought, really? Pocketbook for personal fascism? Why a pocketbook for personal fascism? So I'm just going to drop a quick insert in here to give the reference. The title of the article was Trickle Down Metaphysics and the Dawn of the Trumpian Age. It was published in January 2017 by a guy called Michael Schulson. That's S-C-H-U-L-S-O-N. And the first paragraph of this reads thus, maybe this is unfair to Neville Goddard, a quirky, long-dead New York City mystic, but his 1939 book, At Your Command, reads like a pocket guide for fascists. And he goes on to say a little later on that At Your Command is a book about the emptiness of traditional morality and the triumph of the will. And this is part of the case for it being about fascism, because the triumph of the will is what fascism is all about. So it claims. Why a pocketbook for personal fascism? And the argument that was being made in the piece that I found was to say basically because the book was about getting what you want, it was therefore about promoting yourself above all others, right? And therefore dominating others. And therefore the inference was it was about having power over others. Now, so that was a really, really interesting thing. I hadn't read it that way at all. I didn't get any sense of that at all, but it might be to do with popular conceptions of power. Now, many, many years ago, when I was doing hypnotherapy predominantly, I was known as a hypnotherapist, I would get people come in and I used to do an intake form. And one thing I noticed that would come up on the intake form is that the word control would come up with quite an interesting degree of regularity. So people would say, you know, if only I could control my eating, if only I could control my thoughts, if only I could control my emotions, if only I could control my spouse, right? It's all about control. And this idea of control really suggests precision. It really suggests not allowing anything but what is desired. It's a very kind of rigid way of meeting the world, particularly a complex, uncontrollable, dynamic world. Now, I thought about this and I've got certain biases, you know, people that are aware of how I approach things. I recognize and acknowledge complexity. And I know that you cannot control complexity. Nobody gets to control the world around them. So if they have a need to control the world around them, this is likely to cause problems. So I thought about this and, and I thought what people really want, it's not control, it's power. Right? Power is different from control, okay? You can have power and no control, but you cannot have control without power, right? Because you have to be able to power something. It's like a, like a power boat, right? If you cut the power on a power boat, you can try and steer it all you want and you won't have anything, right? You can throttle it all you want, but if the engine's not running, if there's no actual power there moving the thing forward, there's nothing you can do. So first of all, you need power. Power definitely precedes control and control is likely a pipe dream anyway, right? I tend to advocate choice orientating to choice over control. 
right? Power and choice. Now, here's the thing. I started mentioning to people this distinction, power versus control, when, uh, when people would come in for hypnotherapy. And it very quickly became apparent that there seems to be something embedded in the culture, at least the culture I was operating in, which is UK culture, British culture, uh, Southeast England culture, whatever. There seemed to be something about power that had a stigma on it. So I saw people reacting badly to this idea of power. And they, they'd look horrified. You know, they were desperate for control, but didn't want to have any power. Now, I've reflected upon this deeply and had many, many conversations with many, many people about this over the years. And I think the reason this comes about is because people see power as being power over others, number one. And a lot of people don't want to have power over others, right? Some people do want to have power over others, but a lot of people don't. Most regular people don't want power over others. And they also don't want the responsibility that might go with such power, okay? Now, there's a distinction I've encountered, which is power with versus power over. And this is an interesting distinction. Right? We don't want power over people. We want power with things. I'm more interested in power to, power to. So when I'm coaching people, I'm often helping them build their power to make the differences they want to make in the world. And yes, with power comes responsibility, of course. So part of that is often people, and some people need more work in this area than others, is people getting grounded in their ethics, i.e. the choices they make about how they're going to live their lives, and getting clear in that because that helps them handle their growing personal power. Okay? So... Um, this idea came up with the Neville Goddard thing, you know, that, that this is some kind of personal fascism, whatever. I don't think that's the case. I will say right here that my bias, my personal bias, when I'm working with anybody, any of my clients, is to help them increase their power to be in the world in effective ways, in ways that enable them to make the differences they want to make for themselves, for the people who are important to them, for the wider world. Right? And there's no moral frame around that, that you should be you know, on a bigger mission or anything. We're all here to be as we are and do what we do, as far as I'm concerned. But ultimately, the people I end up working with, in one way or another, they're looking to increase their power. And this means, and this pretty much always means, an upgrade in their personal operating system. A transformation of the sense they have made because not everybody, when they reach adulthood, has an equally good operating system, an equally good set of sense that serves them in the world. Okay? So this is an important thing. So one of the things that I'm helping people do is upgrade that personal operating system, upgrade that sense-making. Now, we can all do this, and it's worth doing. And I've mentioned before in a previous podcast how the sense that we make, it points out to the world, whatever is out there in the world, we might not get to know that absolutely as it is, but we get to interact with it through the sense that we make, but it also creates our experience of ourselves. And it creates what we move towards. It creates what we move away from. And this is where this idea, I mentioned this earlier, of logical fate comes in. There is a relationship between the sense that we make of ourselves in the world and what tends to unfold from us. Right? This term, logical fate, comes from Alfred Korzybski, 
who's famous for his general semantic system, and particularly the term, the map is not the territory. Most people in the self-development world have heard that term, the map is not the territory. So Korzybski, who came up with that idea, what he's saying is the map, that's our sense of the world, is not the territory. It is not the world itself, okay? He also had this idea of logical fate, which is that the sense we make will tend to lead to predictable engagements with the world and, we, and that will tend to lead to predictable results. And this is a sort of pathway that's highlighted in other ways. I sometimes teach what's called the be, do, have model. Right? How you are being creates how you show up and engage with the world, i.e. what you are doing, which in turn generates the kind of results that you tend to co-create with the world. What you have, be, do, have. Right? And being, as I often put it, seeing is being. How we make sense of things creates our perception of them right? and our experience of them. Now, let me give you an example of this. You might get two people who both see a mouse. And person A, they see the mouse and they recoil in horror. Maybe they jump up on a chair like in the old uh, Tom and Jerry cartoons that the lady at the house would jump up on the chair. So person A might jump up on the chair screaming, ooh, a mouse, right? Person B might go, oh, look at the mouse. Isn't the mouse cute? Person A and person B have a very different experience of mouse. What's the difference? Well, I'm going to suggest right here that the difference is the sense they hold about a mouse, right? It's their theory of mouse and partly their theory of themselves, particularly with things like threats. People calculate threats unconsciously by calculating, first of all, the danger they perceive in that thing, but also their ability to deal with that, right? So it's not just about the thing, and it's not just about themselves, it's about themselves in relation to the thing. That's why I emphasize so much when I'm talking about sense-making, that what counts is not just the sense we make of the world, it's the sense we make of ourselves and the sense we make of ourselves in the world, right? And to use that map is not the territory thing. I sometimes use the term with clients map of the world and sometimes the term map of self, right? A map of self in the world. So um, we're basically in a position that we make sense of the world and we experience the world according to the sense that we make and the options that we see in the world are dictated by the sense that we make, right? So if we want to get something different out of our lives, if we want to change our experience, it is always necessary that we change our sense, the way we have the world rendered up in our sense-making. Sometimes I call this your organization of reality, right? Our organization of reality needs to change. So you have a lot of power to do this, but you might not know it. Most people don't know it. The reason being is that whilst we are sense-makers, absolutely, most of us are unconscious sense makers. So when we grew up, we made sense of the world according to, yes, our own thinking. Yes, according to the experiences we had, i.e. the evidence that showed up, but also according to how we saw other people behave, how they framed things and made sense of them in their speech and speech acts, right? What we were told, the inferences we made, not just the explicit things we were told, but the inferences we made based upon what the people around us were saying and doing. All of this stuff comes together and from that emerges our sense of things. Now, 
it could be easy to say that we create our sense of things. And that's a useful frame sometimes. But what's more true is it emerges and we participate in the process through which that emerges. What we have the opportunity to do is as a participant in the process from which our sense emerges, we have the opportunity to increase our power as a participant, to become a more conscious participant, and therefore play an intentional role in creating new, deep, profound sense for ourselves, i.e. upgrade our operating system, transform our engagement with the world, create more power for ourselves as in power to, I'm not talking about power over, I'm not interested in power over. Some people might be, I'm not, right? I think there are ecological issues with that. But you know, this is something that we have the opportunity to do. And it's not easy. It's not easy. And one of the reasons it's not easy is because the ideas that we make sense of the world through, we tend to project out into the world. So we experience those ideas as not being ideas about the world, we experience them as truths in the world. Right? This is just the way our brain is made up, the way our minds are made up. Right? As the physicist David Bohm put it, our minds make up the world and then say, I didn't do it. Right? So we have a bunch of ideas about the world within ourselves and we project them into the world and we perceive the world as if those ideas about it are truths within it. This is what I refer to as the truth trap. Okay? Because of course we can change our ideas about things, but we can't change truths about things. We can't change things that we really believe are true. Right? So if we cannot see that an idea we hold is an idea and not a truth, it will take hold of us. It will hold us in its grip. And what we end up being is a slave to our own sense-making and our own sense rather than the master of it, rather than being able to take ownership of it. Okay? So speaking for myself, I've done a lot of upgrading of my own personal operating system. I've talked about this in the past as personal alchemy. It's something I'm very, very interested in doing. Am I a complete master of that? No. Do I never get caught in truth traps? Of course I get caught in truth traps all the time, right? But there's skill that you can develop and process that you can engage with that helps you upgrade the sense that you make in the world. But it's worth being aware of how that sense is made, right? We are not islands. We do not sit separate from the world, other people's ideas, the culture around us. We do not sit separate from that in judgment of it, you know, creating our own sense independently. We are influenced by everybody and everything that we interact with and engage with. And we also, in turn, influence those around us. So if you're looking to become more adept at being the master of your own sense and sense-making, Right? And I know some people listening to this might go, well, who is the you right, that's doing this? That's a whole other question. But this is something you can definitely become more adept at. But what's really important in doing this is getting to a point where you start to see that your sense of the world is not the world. Your ideas about the world are not the world that you have ideas about. Right? And most of the time, all of the time, I'm going to say, the things that are a part of the world, the simple things, the complex things, the highly complex things, and most of those things are processes at some level or another, there's nothing that cannot be made sense of in a variety of different ways. So ultimately, 
What I would suggest is what we're charged with is we're charged with ways of making sense of things, given that there isn't anything that cannot be made sense of in a variety of different ways. We're charged with finding a way of making sense of it that helps us work with that quote unquote thing in the world effectively, right? Change it if we wish to, if we wish to participate in that, but also create ourselves in our relationship with it as having the power to do that having the power to make difference where we can. And I'm not saying we have ultimate power and we can change anything and we can remake the universe any way we want. There's a lovely quote from Terence McKenna, I think it's from. He says, you know, the real secret of magic is that the world is made of words. And if you know the words the world is made up of, you can make it up pretty much any way that you want, right? Now, I would change this to the real secret of magic is the world is made of ideas or concepts or sense, right? That's the world as you experience it. And when you know the ideas that you're making it up with, i.e. your organization of reality, you can make it up pretty much any way that you like. But that doesn't mean that any way of making it up and every way of making it up is equal. And this, I would suggest, is an area of difficulty that some people who, let's loosely call it a sort of postmodern way of thinking, which talks about sort of post-truth. It's like, well, if we don't get to know how the world really is, right? The map is not the territory. We never get to know the territory. So all we've got is the map. So the map becomes the territory and we get to make that up pretty much any way we like. And I mentioned this in the previous episode about uh, the three wise monkeys, personal development of the three wise monkeys. If I step out into the path of the tram out there, I suspect it doesn't matter what ideas I hold about the tram, whatever that thing is I make sense of as the tram is likely to have an impact on me and I don't mean metaphorically. So we have a lot of power in how we make sense. Most people, it is not intuitive. It is not intuitive for anybody to really take charge of remaking your sense that you have of the world because that sense really seems true. The things you really deeply believe about the world really seem true. It's not easy to shake those loose. A lot of the work that I do with people is helping them to shake that loose. I often say to people when they come to work with me, you know, if we're going to work together, you're going to have to be willing to let go of some deeply cherished truths, right? I want people to know that we're going to be dismantling some of their deeply held cherished truths, right? And this is not because, I want to make this clear, it's not because I'm going to give them a new truth according to the way I think they should think about the world, right? When I'm working with somebody, to upgrade their operating system, let's say, I'm working with them to loosen off their old truths, which creates space for their generative intelligence. And this, as far as I'm concerned, the generative intelligence that we possess, each and every one of us, is what has built our current organization of reality, right? Or co-created that with the world around us. That generative intelligence comes back online when we shake down old truths and loosen them off. And opens up to creating new ways of seeing, ways of being, ways of engaging with the world, upgrading the operating system. Now, if I'm working with somebody, of course, I might make offers of certain ways of looking at things and experiencing things, but they are not imposed upon the person as truth. They are an offer, right? How is it different when you look at it like this? What would it change about you and your life if you saw things this way? What would it change about you in your life if you knew that you could whatever? You know, so I'm inviting people 
to take different perspectives, to look at the world through different sets of sense and experience what that does for them, experience what that changes for them. And this process, speaking for myself, this is similar to the process I used to upgrade my own operating system. Now, it is true to say that some things, some truths are deeper, because if you think about the process of building our worldview, so to speak, the collection of sense that we make, there's some stuff that we will have built early on. When we put the world together for ourselves, we do it recursively. So we have this sense-making faculty, I often call it the generative faculty, that makes some initial sense and then uses the sense that it's made to make yet more sense. And then that uses the sense that it's made to make yet more sense still. So we end up with deeper levels of foundation in our sense. And some of that deeper stuff can be a challenge to change. And often the trick isn't to go back and change it. The trick is to nuance it at a further level so that it uh, creates a a finer level of granulation in our rendering of the world and therefore a higher level of choice. Now, the truth trap. The trouble with the truth trap is this. Until people come to really see that really there is no truth that they can know, right? I often say the truth is out there to echo the X-Files, you know, but the best we can do is pull up alongside of it. We don't get to really know it absolutely firsthand. There's no such thing as a view from nowhere, i.e. we always bring our perspective to everything. So if people want to get really radical, I'm not saying I take everybody I work with to this place, because I don't. A lot of the people I don't. A lot of the people I'm working specifically with very specific truths are not working at the level of truth in general. But when people can get to the point where they recognize that they do not have access to the truth, None of what they believe is true. It's just what they believe, right? So I often say the biggest, most foundational cognitive bias that we human beings suffer from is how I see it is how it is and what I see is all there is. When somebody is freed from that and they move to how I see it is how I see it and what I see is what I see, right? And then there's everything else beyond that. Once they get that, once they get that the truth of the world, the truth of themselves, can never be known absolutely, but can only be moved towards through a variety of different perspectives. And there are ways to evaluate those perspectives in terms of the impact they have for you in your life and the differences you want to make, right? So if people really want to be able to become adept at rewriting their own operating system and doing that efficiently, uh, then recognize this idea of the truth trap, recognizing the idea that once we have a way of seeing things, we tend to think that it really is that way. We get caught in this truth trap. There's a problem. And if you think, well, some things are true and some things are not, then you can often end up chasing your tail around and getting confused, trying to find out the truth, right? A lot of people do that with themselves. What is the truth of who I am? What am I really like? What's the authentic me? It is a sucker's game. You cannot get to the bottom of that. You cannot get to the truth that's out there. So at a certain point, you have to let go and go, I need a different criteria to evaluate by. This is where something like pragmatism comes in. Okay, so that was making sense of the truth trap. I might do some more stuff on this because I've really talked about this here from an individual perspective. But I did mention that we are influenced all the time in our sense-making by the world around us. 
and we are also participating in the collective sense-making of the world. Each and every one of us participates to a greater or lesser degree. We do not all participate equally, but we all are capable of participating and to some degree do participate in collective sense-making. And this is a particularly significant thing. If you have an eye to going, you know, sometimes I mentioned in the Three Wise Monkeys thing about this, this idea that there's certain things in the world we might want to address and deal with. Sometimes I've had conversations uh, with, I often have a conversation with my father. Uh, he might even listen to this. But sometimes we're talking about things and I might be saying, well, this is going on, that's going on. And he says, yes, it is, but what can we do, right? And this is a very common sentiment. What can we do? There are things that we are powerless in the face of, right? There is very little that we are powerless in the face of because we always get to choose our response to things. But we also get to choose how we engage in a broader sense in the collective sense-making. That is not to say that everybody gets out there and everybody equally participates in what Jürgen Habermas would call the public sphere, but there is an option to do so. Right, so there are methods and technologies for increasing personal power within your own sense-making, this kind of thing. There's also, for those who have an interest in doing so, ways of participating in the collective sense-making of humanity through various nodes. I'm not saying that anyone's got the power out there to utterly transform the way everybody thinks at the click of their fingers, but we can participate in collective sense-making. I think it's an important thing for people to do if they look out to the world and they think, there are things I'd like to have an impact with out there in the broader world, right? But I can guarantee you won't have control ever with anything, certainly out there in the broader world. Influence, yes. Control, no. Okay, so that was sense-making and the truth trap or making sense of the truth trap. I think that's what we called this episode. If you've got any questions about this, please do ask. If you uh, like this content and you want to share it with people, I would love for you to do that. And other than that, I look forward to when we next connect.